Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Jody Rosen. He is a contributor to the New York Times Magazine and is the author of Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle, which is published by our friends at Crown. Jody, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Jody, um, I work in Aspen, Colorado, on top of a mountain. I live in Basalt, Colorado, at the bottom of the mountain. It seems like everybody here is riding bicycles. Most people have two or three. How has bicycling taken off as both a hobby and a mode of transportation since COVID-19 took hold a few years ago? Yeah, well, um, I mean, there's been a, you know, the effect of the pandemic on, on cycling globally has been enormous and in certain ways difficult to quantify because it's <laughs> because there are so many bicycles and cyclists and so it's it's such a it's such a big global phenomenon in the first place and um and the effect of the pandemic has has been so great and has you know had different effects in different places i mean i imagine in a place like aspen you know as you say colorado is famous for having a lot of really accomplished fit sports cyclists around you know what i mean and and people who i guess you can tell me who must who must commute by bicycles you know because they're so fit in the first place and they can mash up and down mountains you know without without it causing all kinds of problems for someone like me that might be tricky because i you know i i live in new york city and i'm a i ride 365 days a year um but uh but it's you know the terrain here is is hardly as forbidding. But, um, but you know, I think the biggest effect that the pandemic has had is really in, um, in cities um, across the world, um, where, uh, you know, first and foremost, in the in the kind of peak period, the early days of the early, I should say, weeks and months of the pandemic in, in the spring of 2020, in, in many cities across the world, you know, uh, commuters, people were seeking a, a, a socially distant form of transportation. Um, they no longer felt safe on public transportation because suddenly their neighbors had been become potential vectors of disease. They wanted to, they wanted to travel, um, you know, swiftly, but um, in a socially distanced manner. And, um, uh, and so suddenly that bicycle in the basement, maybe that, you know, for that for millions of people had kind of, you know, just been sitting there unridden for weeks or months or years looked appealing. Um, uh, you know, of course, this 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 was also, uh, you know, this this what I call in the book and what is definitely a big COVID nineteen bicycle boom um, was a factor also of the fact that you know that that the many roadways were cleared of cars. You know, it was simply you know Ill, you know illegal or de facto illegal to travel by automobile in many places during the peak of the pandemic in those in those early months. Um, so a bicycle proved a, a really good way of getting out, getting around, and maybe also for many just, you know, who were quarantining and didn't have, you know, their old means of exercise. It was a way to, it was a way to keep fit, keep your, get, keep your mind right, stop, stop yourself from going crazy. So suddenly this, this, this old 19th century tool um, was, uh, had a new 21st century utility in this, in this crisis. And it, it's interesting because this is a, this is somewhat typical of the bicycle's history. You know, bicycles have kind of, have, there's been a many, many sort of rises and falls of cycling, um, especially in a place like the United States throughout history. And it's often been crises of various sorts that have engendered, you know, that have prompted new bicycle booms. Um, this was also the case, for instance, in the 1970s when the OPEC oil crisis and a, and a kind of fitness boom then prompted millions and millions of Americans to rediscover the bicycle. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal, and and the fact that there um, that there was that there has over the past you know couple decades been um, 
been a movement in cities to create new types of bicycle infrastructure from bike sharing schemes to new bicycle lanes meant that when COVID-19 hit, there was in many places, the infrastructure was there, was in place. And then in many places, there was kind of makeshift infrastructure that was thrown up in a real quick and dirty fashion by municipalities and governments. Uh, and a lot of that infrastructure has has stuck around. So, for instance, in the Philippines, in Manila, there were hundreds and hundreds of miles of makeshift cycling lanes that were created, um, you know, during during um, those that peak period of, of of the COVID crisis, which now have become a permanent part of that city's infrastructure. We can look to a place called Paris, also where the the mayor there, Anne Hidalgo, moved very aggressively. She was a, a pro bicycling zealot in the first place, and she moved very aggressively to kind of turn. Paris into a, a cycling city and, and marginalized cars in much of the in much of central Paris in various ways. So, so that's that's um that's another thing that happened. And and you know for for those of us who are of course who are you know cycling advocates and activists, um, it's was dispiriting how in certain American cities the you know the the powers that be didn't move as aggressively as many thought they should have to to kind of seize the moment of COVID and and institute new measures and create new infrastructure. But it it it, it has it was a, a you know a huge and and in a way perhaps unprecedented in history global cycling boom that erupted um, along with the along with the um, the pandemic. Yeah, thanks. It's been um, it's been great here. You know, we don't have the infrastructure problem here. There are bike trails everywhere, um, and and it's been so much fun just riding around everywhere. But um, let's move back in time to the beginning of your book here, Jody. You open your book by citing several advertisements and talking about space travel. What do bicycles have to do with space exploration and space travel? Well, um, an interesting thing about the bicycle is that f practically from the first moment of its arrival, this is in the second decade of the, of the 19th century, around about the year 1817, um, uh, and in the, the years afterwards, from that first moment, bicycles have been compared to kind of, um, yeah, like, likened to in various ways, thought of by various people as a kind of flying machine. Uh, this was a this was of course a metaphor, um, but so for instance in that first period we find bicycles compared to Pegasus, the the winged stallion of Greek mythology, and as we move up through the 19th century, um, these these comparisons this metaphor continues to get a workout, <laughs> you know. Uh, so so journalists, cyclists themselves, many others compared bikes to the experience of bike riding to um, the experience of flying, they, you know. Um, cyclists said, oh, when I ride a bike, I feel like I'm, I'm a bird skimming through the air. Um, and I think this speaks to the kind of incredible physical sensation of cycling, the kind of the, the feeling of liberation and freedom that you get moving so swiftly across the land under your own power, which after all was, a, was really an unprecedented uh, experience for humanity in that in this period and, you know, up, up through the end of the 19th century. Um, it was in the 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 very last decade of the 19th century, the great bicycle boom of the 1890s, when millions took to the roads on bicycles en masse, in, especially in the US and, and Western Europe and the UK, places like that, um, that, that these advertisements that you're talking about um, uh, were uh, began to be produced uh, you know, in, in great numbers. So there were these, these famous images um, for instance, in advertising posters, picturing bicycles in outer space as sort of spacecraft. Bicycles were shown, you know, kind of slaloming through the, through the Milky Way and, you know, riding uh, atop the moon, you know, on the moon. And um, often the, the riders of these bicycles were, in these advertising images, were um, kind of goddesses or nymph figures who were in states of we say scantily clad figures, so there was a kind of sexy component to this. Um, but really, what was being depicted was 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 the dreamy sensation of of being airborne on a bicycle, which again I think speaks to um, this 
this idea, this feeling that you get as a rider of a bicycle that that you're that you're kind of riding on air, that you're not quite earthbound. And I, and I think there's a good reason for this, kind of built into the mechanics of the bicycle, which is that this same period in the in the kind of late 1880s and early 1890s that the, we had this big bicycle boom was the period when of the invention of the of the pneumatic rubber tire, that is the rubber tire that's filled with an air with an air filled inner tube. Um, and so in fact, not just metaphorically, uh, a person who rides a bicycle is riding on air to the extent that the wheels are turning on, kind of turning on air, that you're, you're riding on wheels which are, which are held above the pavement by, you know, an, a, 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 a rubber tube filled with air. Keep that bicycle from tumbling to the ground. Um, so that's a, that's a long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, it's all good. And thank you um, for connecting that to the Wright Brothers, our uh, sponsors at Quail Ridge Books in North Carolina. will enjoy that. Um, Jody, I'm hoping you can tell us um, about a quote that is in your book about bicycling. And that quote is, you are traveling, not being traveled, end quote. Uh, can you tell us where this quote comes from and what it means? Yeah, if I if I recall, that quote is from um, appeared first in a newspaper in 1879. It was like a, a journalist or a writer who was who was extolling, um, you know, the experience of bicycle travel. And this this is before the arrival of, of what we would recognize as the modern bicycle, just before the invention or the mass production of the so-called safety bicycle, which is the bicycle we recognize today with two equal sized tires and a diamond shaped frame and the and the kind of rear driven. Um, chain uh, and those pneumatic rubber tires. So this is a, this was a, you know, the, the writer here is referring to an earlier model of bicycle, which makes it all the more remarkable really. But what the person was, who wrote that was identifying was the fact that, um, you know, the bicycle is a human powered device. So it's the experience of bicycle riding is very much a, an active one, not a passive one um, compared for instance, to other modes of, travel at the you know at that point in history say uh, the experience of being sitting in a horse-drawn carriage or atop a horse which after all was the you know the primary means other than you know walking on two feet the primary means of travel throughout human history up into the to the 19th century um and then then it's it, there the other or, you know kind of main method of transportation and i think maybe this is what the, the writer of that sentence had in mind uh, during this period was of course travel by train by by you know a, a steam locomotive or you know a locomotive drawn train which after all was was again a passive experience of you know sort of sitting back in a car while well various <laughs> technology did the work for you um so uh uh this is uh you know it, it was it was a unique uh experience to be on a you know Kind of piloting a machine where where the you the rider were not just the passenger but also the engine of the machine and this i think is the is the kind of defining feature of the bicycle um, which speaks to a lot of the um the kind of wondrousness of the experience of bike riding but also um a lot of the mythology that's arisen around the bicycle because it's this it's the it's the, the bicycle is a curious contraption where the rider is a kind of a, a component of the bicycle as much as he or she is a rider you know the, the 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 experience of riding a bicycle is very much one of merging your body with the machine becoming kind of one with the machine in, in the book i say it's uh, it might be more accurate to, to conceive of a bicycle as a prosthesis you know more than a, a vehicle so in the kind of on the ideal bike ride right when you're when you're really feeling it <laughs> um when you're in a groove as a cyclist there's this there's this kind of sensation of of not knowing where your body ends and the bike begins because you've kind of become you've kind of become like a hu a, a human machine <laughs> uh you know we sort of morphed with with the bike um and so yeah that's what that's what i think that writer was getting at way back in 1879 yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jody. Um, I'm now hoping that you can tell us about how bicycling was a part of the women's emancipation movement in the USA and how bicycling is perhaps 
influencing similar patterns of social behavior in places like Iran. Yeah, so, um, well, you know, I think, uh, you know, a crucial thing to understand about the, the bicycle's kind of development as a, as a technology and a social phenomenon is that, is that prior to that late 19th century bicycle boom, um, you had various other types of bikes that were, um, that were kind of not as safe to ride and were, you know, more difficult to ride. Um, and were uh, more expensive to produce and to buy. Um, so really the bicycle prior to say around the year 1885 was kind of a niche phenomenon. It was more like a, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of something, something more like, you know, a hula hoop or a pet rock type cultural social phenomenon, as opposed to like a, you know, a mass, a mass phenomenon. Um, but suddenly, at the end of the 19th century, with these various technological breakthroughs, engineering breakthroughs, um, you had this, what they called, pointedly, the safety bicycle. Um, the nickname gave, given to that 1885 bike because it was, it was far less hazardous to ride than, than the earlier models. Um, and this was a machine that transformed cycling from a somewhat, as I say, niche phenomenon into a mass phenomenon and kicked off that 1890s bicycle boom when suddenly you had millions of people on bicycle, um, especially in the United States, in, including crucially many people who previously hadn't had access to that kind of personal mobility. So you had working class people who, who couldn't afford to travel, you know, by horse and had to travel, um, you know, previously on foot or on public transportation. And um, of course, you had women, uh, including the so-called new woman, uh, you know, uh, the, the feminists of the period, um, suffragists, people, women who are advocating, for instance, for the women's right to vote, for whom the bicycle became a symbol of personal and collective emancipation and, and a tool of protest. Uh, because, you know, suffragists, um, women activists of the time rode bikes on mass to rallies, etc. Um, so predictably, there was a there was a tremendous backlash to this by bicycle mania and, and, a, and a great moral panic arose arose um, in reaction to to the you know the transformations that were so the social transformations that the bicycle was engendering especially um, the kind of the the, the new uh, autonomy that it gave to women uh, if you think of you know this period in kind of Victorian society in the United States and say England um, you know women had a very prior to this period had you know middle-class haute bourgeois women um, their movements were very much um, kind of circumscribed and it was thought that women needed to be chaperoned when they moved out in public well suddenly the bicycle uh, you know gave them this this tool that that allowed them to to move more freely and you know unsurveilled around places like cities um, so the bicycle was very much um uh a um uh, associated with with the feminist movement of that time, and it, it has continued to serve that role in traditional, more conservative societies. So you mentioned Iran. There are places um, even today where cycling by women is, um, you know, socially shunned, stigmatized, and um, and in fact, in in certain places, outlawed. So they're in in Iranian society, for instance, um, you know. Clergymen, ayatollahs have have issued edicts, religious edicts, um, discouraging or even outright banning um, the use of bicycles by women. This is was also true up until recently in, in for instance, Saudi Arabia, um, because for similar reasons that we see it during that 1890s movement, it was thought to, uh, among other things, um, you know. It was regarded as something that could be um, a catalyst to certain types of, uh, you know, sexual to, to sexual liberation. So there's so the, you know this, the association of the bicycle with with uh, with with sex and with um, women's sexual liberation uh, is is was definitely like you know a, a big factor in the moral panic in the 1890s, and it, we continue to see this in traditional societies across the world. There are other places where this has been the case, for instance, North Korea. So even to this day, you know, there's a there's a close link between um, between women's liberation, between a, a kind of 
feminism and and, and women's autonomy and and the use of of bicycles and and a, and, a, and a backlash among you know very traditional let's say sexist guardians of traditional morality that that has that continues to circle around women and their and their use of bicycles. Yeah, and I want to elaborate on that for just a moment, Jody. Um, there is a section in your book about bicycle pornography. And um, is this what everyone was worried about? Um, but really, is this a popular market or a niche market? And how has bicycling and sexuality been conflated over the past couple hundreds of years? Yeah, well, I mean, on the, as I say, you know, it was it really there was uh, this this kind of um, uh, this hysteria that arose into, uh, in, the, in the period of the 1890s in reaction to just the mass phenomenon of cycling, um, you know, often uh, seem to come back to the question of bicycles and and sex and 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 women's bodies. So there was, you know, uh, I mean, honestly, when I think about it, like I have to ascribe it to to prurience, to you know, frankly, dirty-minded men, many of whom <laughs> during this Victorian period were, you know, sort of posturing as as guardians of as traditional morality and you know women's chastity but really you all you when you read the literature in this period you want to just say first of all your inclination as a as a modern person as a you know in as a contemporary 21st century person is simply to laugh at the at the um you know the way a lot of these kind of tracks and screeds against the bicycle <laughs> are were written but also um you know you just want to roll your eyes and say oh dude get your mind out of the gutter and it's almost always although not exclusively dudes, men of the period who were concerned about this. Um, that said, uh, there are testimonies of women who are, you know, who were, um, for instance, uh, <laughs> enjoying the pleasure that they received by riding bicycles, like literally sexual pleasure. Um, so there was a, and there's a, there's a vast medical literature in this period that's where, you know, kind of male doctors are worrying about young, young women getting their first, you know, sensation of uh like you know not to be too graphic about it but like you know get having having their 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 clitoris stimulated by the bicycle seat as they rose along as they rode along so it was thought that bicycle riding quote unquote engendered the 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 horrible habit of masturbation <laughs> so there's a lot and and you're, there's even um you know a good deal of writing about women literally losing their virginity while on bicycle seats so like i mean there there's some 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 outlandish stuff was was written during this period and was was thought about um but uh there uh, you should say there's something to it because there the bicycle really was um uh, it was a tool of sexual liberation in the sense that as i was saying earlier many women were were able to like you know escape um the kind of um courtship rights that were kind of mandated prior to the period of the bicycles by riding bikes you know they could move more freely through through places like cities and meet men on their own and not just men that were sort of chosen for them uh and then uh, and, and and the the kind of um just sort of more broadly the relationship that both men and women have to the bicycle as bicycle riders, you know, that this kind of relationship that I was talking about earlier, where you merge your body with the bicycle is, you know, I guess you could say a kind of it's, it's, I don't know if you want to say that it's a sexual relationship, but it's an intimate relationship of the human frame to the bicycle frame. Um, and this kind of fusion that one achieves as a cyclist when you ride the bike is has been metaphorically applied by various thinkers <laughs> to you know or likened to a kind of a kind of a sexual act and, and so as you say today um this continues in the realm of porn pornography so there's you know in there's there's bike porn of various sorts there's just kind of like you know standard porn where you know you, you can you can go online and 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 google and you'll turn up some stuff a lot of stuff where you see people performing various sexual acts with and on bicycles, but there's also a kind of progressive movement, a kind of, I guess, you know, uh, 
what you would call a, a left-leaning sex-positive type of bicycle porn, often made by women for women, a kind of bike porn underground that exists, and there are various you know film festivals and movements that kind of foreground the idea of the bicycle as a, as a as a as a feminist device that's not just a device of mobility, but of like sexual gratification, shall we say? Hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for that information, Jody. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back, with Jody Rosen. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Jody Rosen, author of Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle, which is published by our friends at Crown. Jody, how are e-bikes and bike sharing programs contributing to the growth of enthusiasm for bicycling? And do you find e-bikes to be problematic in any way? Um, well, I'll, I'll start with bike sharing, which is just, um, you know, I think a, a great development. Um, you know, it's an, it's an idea that was kind of, that was pioneered um, in the 1960s in Amsterdam by anarchists who um, conceived this thing called a white bicycle program where, whereby they would you know, paint white, bicycle, white uh, bicycles white, leave them out on the street for the use of anyone who wanted to pick, pick one up to ride wherever they wanted to go. And they'd just leave the bike, you know, use the kickstand, leave the bicycle there, and the next person would come along and use it. So it was very much um, you know, a, a, a kind of idealistic um, political movement that gave birth to this, this notion. Um, uh, and that proposal was actually rejected at the time in Amsterdam. They, they brought that proposal to the actual city of Amsterdam and it never, it never got off the ground, although it was used on a, a small scale in, in certain communities in the city. Um, but the idea has stuck around. And, and now, of course, across the world, we have these bike sharing schemes, which are many of them are kind of the opposite of an anarchist program because they're sponsored by, you know, multinational. You see those like big banks whose whose names and and logos are on the are, are on the bicycles and things like that. But they're but they're wonderful programs in that they, you know, provide, um, you know, access to bicycles relatively cheaply um, as an alternative to other forms of transportation, especially cars. And, you know, for instance, here in New York City, we have a city bike program, which is grown by leaps, leaps and bounds over the decade or so of its existence, such that there are, you know, a million people or so that use city bikes these days, um, which is uh, which is great. Um, and uh, and so I think I th what's what's great about those programs is i think it's you know um it's made it made bicycling seem just less daunting to certain people more you know e it's easier to access a bike that you can just pick up off the street kind of use and then get rid of you don't have to worry about where you're going to lock it at night don't have to worry about it getting stolen uh and and uh, and so you know those have continued to proliferate through especially through this century, the first couple of decades of this century and post-pandemic, we're seeing more and more of that. Um, and increasingly, e-bikes are fixtures of these bike sharing schemes. As you say, e-bikes are, you know, kind of these, these pedal assist, as they call them, bikes with a, with a little um, motor, um, you know, electric motor attached, which kind of supercharges your pedaling power such that, um, you know, so for instance, when you get to a hill, um, you you can you can pedal just a little bit and the bike kind of zips straight up the hill. Um, and honestly, I, you know, as a bicycle purist, as a kind of like an old traditionalist, I have a certain 
um, crankiness that I'm not proud of about e-bikes. Like there's there's some part of me that that resists them or feel you know has a little skepticism about them because it's definitely a fundamentally um, you know, different type of arrangement. You know, like the ideal that like you know the idea that a, bi a bicycle traditionally is a is a human powered device. You know, you're using pedal power, your own muscle power to, to propel the, the vehicle. Um, but that, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not proud of that skepticism, which I, which I kind of feel <laughs> and, and, and I, and I, and I, uh, and I, and I do my best to kind of suppress, suppress those feelings and ideas because the fact is like e-bikes are, are awesome. And I think that they're really going to be a key to, um, uh, getting more and more people on bikes and, and, crucially off of cars uh, as we, you know, move forward in the 21st century. Um, uh, they're, they're a lot, in many ways, a lot more practical than um, a regular old bike for a commuter of a certain sort. So for instance, an older person who maybe, you know, doesn't want to strain <laughs> their, their um, sinews and go, you know, pedaling up a hill. Um, can ride an e-bike and, and, you know, it's a, it's a much easier ride. And say if you're a, you know, an office worker or somebody who has to get to a, a meeting to the extent that we still have offices post pandemic, you know, you, let's say you're going to a date and you don't want to show up dripping with sweat. You know, you've got a 40 block ride to get there. Well, you, you hop on an e-bike and you can, and you can arrive, you know, looking the part. So yeah, e-bikes, e-bikes are great. And I think they're, they're very, they're very much the future. Um, and uh, and you know I have recently been been you know riding them you know kind of experimenting with them because they have them here as I say in our city bike program in New York City um, and and yeah they 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 feel amazing I mean you really you really zip along on one of those things so so yeah I think that you know we're going to see more and more of them just to give you an example in China now there's said to be about 300 million of those things on the road. Um, and, you know, they've really contributed to the recovery, you know, China famously was kind of the kingdom of the bicycle um, for many years, then China embraced car culture over the last couple decades in a big way and the bicycles were, was very much marginalized in China and now the e-bike is bringing the bicycle back in China in a big way so so yes they're 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 crucial to the to the, to the future of cycling in, in cities in the 21st century and I think, um, you know, very much a positive development. Yeah, uh, we have them in our bike share program here too. And I think, you know, for commuters and on, you know, these long kind of meandering bike trails, they're excellent. But I'll, I will say that what scares the shit out of me is the prospect of going down, you know, a mountain bike trail on Snowmass Mountain and an e-bike comes up behind me going twice as fast, and, you know, because I, I don't want to fall off the mountain, Julie. Um, but we will see how that goes with mm. those positions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I will say, though, speaking of sharing trails and roads, there is a long history, which you detail in your book about people getting incredibly contentious about bicyclists and their need to share road space with vehicles. Uh, what is this about? How far back does it go? Why do people get so angry that they have to share the roads with bikers? Yeah, as you say, this goes right back to the to the or the very beginning of of um, cycling. So the bicycle, like you know, that very first bicycle that was created in 1817 by a by a, a minor German nobleman named Karl von Dreist. This was in Mannheim in the Duchy of Baden, in, in what is today Germany. Um, uh, uh, that first bicycle was explicitly conceived as a kind of um, uh, successor to the horse, or to do the job of the horse. Um, and, um, you know, which after all dominated the roads, you know, horse, horses and horse-drawn vehicles dominated the roads in that period. Um, and so throughout the, the, the 19th century, there was a lot of kind of um, contentiousness, we'll call it road rage that we recognize today, battles on, on the roadways between cyclists and, as they were called at that time, horsemen, right? Um, which very much anticipate what we, what we, the, the, the kinds of skirmishes we see out on the roads today between cyclists and motorists, um, and and the and the the situation on the roads back then, um, 
uh, as I say, is one we recognize because, you know, at the time, bicycles were thought of um, by many people, you might even say most people, as kind of illegitimate or illicit um, kind of uh, trespassers on roads that were meant for horses and horse-drawn vehicles. Uh, it was kind of thought, you know, that bikes had no place on the road. Like, what are these weird machines that are suddenly out, out on the roads? Um, so, uh, and, and likewise, uh, you know, the pavements or the sidewalks were thought to be the domain of pedestrians. So bicycles were, you know, regarded as, a, as illegitimate trespassers on the sidewalks too. And that's, that's definitely the situation um, that we continue to see today. You know, there was, a, there was this brief window in history, this period in the, in the 1890s when the bicycle kind of had dominion over the roads, when, uh, you know, or at least, you know, there was, there was this, you know, they were definitely thought to be the future. So, you know, in the 1890s, people, can, as, as they looked towards the approaching 20th century, they thought, oh, okay, this is going to be a, a century of the bicycle. Well, little did they know that the, the autom here came the automobile, and it was, you know, the 20th century was, of course, the, the automotive age. Um, and so very quickly, for instance, here in the United States, bicycles were marginalized in, in many ways, both legally, you know, in many places, it's, it's de facto or, in fact, illegal for bicycles to to be on the road. Certainly you would never ride a bike, bicycle on like, you know, an interstate or like a freeway, right? Um, and it's certainly very dangerous to do so on, mostly because of the way that the roads are designed. You know, the, the places where it's safe to ride bikes, um, places like we think, you know, of uh, famously of Northern cities in Northern Europe, places like Copenhagen and, and, and of course Amsterdam, are places with wonderful infrastructure that that kind of section off the roads, you know, that that have created very safe bicycle uh, lanes that are protected lanes that are separated from the other forms of transportation, separated from the streetcars that run, for instance, through Amsterdam, separated from the motor vehicles. So everybody can move through the city in a in a way that's safe and that in a way where they're not like you know battling for running room on the roads. But so in a place like New York. I don't. I don't know. You can speak to what it's like in Colorado, but here in the city, it's very much. You know, there's there's infrastructure here. There's more infrastructure here now than there ever has been. So there's some effort that's been made to create those kind of sectioned off, you know, protected bike lanes um, using bollards or parked cars or other, you know, other barriers that separate motor vehicles from from bikes. But in fact, there's very very little of that. So it's mostly a can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, sure it's mostly it, it's mostly a fucking free for all out there. You know what I mean? And you're really like, you know, a cyclist is taking his or her life in in their hands when you when you go out there. And and it's a bad situation for 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 everyone. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, cyclists have a way of really, you know, um, uh, you know, saying you know a lot of cyclists regard regard motorists as as you know sort of by definition evil or you know cars themselves as evil um but it's really like you know the truth is when you want to apportion blame this is really structural stuff it's about system the systems that have been put in place by um your by policy and urban planners which really leaves everyone in a, in a in a really shitty situation so yesterday actually yesterday right here in brooklyn i saw like outside a coffee place where I go in the morning to get my cup of coffee, I saw an accident. Um, there was actually a guy on a scooter um, who um, was riding along in the bike lane and a guy, I, uh, uh, a guy who was driving a big van, um, you know, a kind of, I guess a cargo van of some sort, um, mm -hmm. took a right and didn't, ha didn't see the scooter guy at all and, you know, hit him broadside. Now, luckily that guy was injured, but not, you know, grievously injured, um, mm -hmm. and and the the driver of the van got out, and he was extremely he was almost as shaken up as mm -hmm. I think both people involved in this accident were in shock, yeah. um, and you know my take on this was like you know both these guys are in a bad situation that's not of their making they're just like operating on streets here in Brooklyn that are just extremely poorly designed and it doesn't the truth is you know um, it would cost some money but it would cost far less money 
than the money we're spending on, on you know, in, ter- in public health terms, in terms of like, you know, what we're paying because, because of the effects of climate change and, you know, living in a car culture um, to create good infrastructure. Um, but there are a lot of interests that um, mitigate against the creation of, of, of good, good infrastructure that would that would reduce the kind of um, you know battles that we see out on the roads the kind of all the all the accidents we that we see and and you know this this kind of road rage that you asked about which which dates way way back to the beginning of the bicycle yeah and you would think with climate change as you mentioned you know the fact that our planet is burning etc uh that folks would be encouraging bicycling more um, for, you know, trying to ensure that future generations have a place to live um, and all of that. But um, yeah, I'm sympathetic, Jody. I used to live in San Francisco where I didn't have a car and I rode my bike everywhere. And it was kind of the same, you know, free for all kind of feeling there. But here in Colorado, I, I have to say you can ride anywhere on a bike. I mean, it's just dedicated bike lanes, trails, etc., separated from the roadway. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, that's yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's a bike a bicyclist paradise out here for sure. Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier, Jody, that I didn't want to get chased off of a mountain by an e-bike um, because there is a lot of uh, mountain biking here. We're one of the nine um, gold medal cycling regions around. Uh, but for our listeners who are unaware, who are not bicyclists, can you tell us a little bit about how bicycling as a mode of transportation evolved into the sports of mountain biking and BMX biking? Yeah, so, um, well, let's start with mountain biking since you're out there in Colorado. So, um, you know, throughout the history of the bicycle, there's been various efforts, you know, it started, you know, right from the beginning, there was there was bicycle racing, like right from the beginning. So like, it's always, there's there's been sport cycling alongside the kind of utility cycling, you know, commuting, just regular getting around town kind of biking that, that I practice and that I mostly write about in this book, simply because there's been so, there's been a lot of writing about the sport of bicycle racing. So I felt like that was pretty, both pretty well covered and it's, and it's something that I'm less interested in that just personally. So that's why there's, there's a little less of that in my, in my book than maybe in most bicycle books. But, um, but that has been, you know, a, a, a thing from the beginning. Um, and then, um, uh, and there, there's also been, you know, efforts throughout to kind of soup up or transform bikes in various ways to accommodate different types of, cycling challenges. So right from the beginning, people want, you know, felt the need, a kind of like I, I, what, what I think of as like a primal human urge to like push that thing up, up mountains. Because after all, you know, it's both because it's great exercise, I think, and it's a, and it's a challenge. It's, it's, it's like a challenge to be met and, you know, when you, and, and, you know, overcome. And then and also, you get a great view from up there. You know all the reasons that we want to climb mountains. You know, I don't have to tell someone from Colorado why people want to want to want to climb up a mountain. But um, uh, you know, it's it's obviously extremely difficult to do it on a, on a let's say a bike that's not geared. Um, so you know, there's amazing stories of in the 19th century of people, you know, crossing the Alps and things on on those big for instance, penny farthing bikes, those crazy bikes of the 1870s with the one giant wheel in the front and the little tiny wheel in the back and the pedals, you know, a direct drive machine with the pedals right on that big front wheel, you know, very unsafe machine in many ways. And so that, that's, those are true f- feats of, you know, heroism, I think, or at least of bravery um, and, and, of, uh, and of stamina. But, um, but beginning in uh there there were various efforts i'm kind of this this history is is a a little bit um uh not doing justice to some to the 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 many people throughout throughout the the deck across the decades who've who souped up bikes in order to ride up and down mountains but you know it was famously out in um the bay area out in northern california um, at a place called Mount, Ta- Mount Tamilpay that a group of cyclists who wound up calling themselves Repack um, because of, well, we won't get into when get into why, we don't want to go all the way down the rabbit hole, but the point is that they used old Schwinn bikes, uh, kind of big, you know, heavy duty Schwinn cruiser bikes of the 1950s, which they retrofitted in various ways um, to be able, with big balloon tires, to be able to like go off-roading up and down mountains. Um, and 
um, this they created a kind of daredevil culture, uh, you know, among a small community of cyclists out in in Northern California. Um, and then there were there were other movements in in the UK that sort of did the same thing. And then beginning in the kind of late seventies, early eighties, um, these these mountain bikes were brought to market, which of course had, you know suspension systems and big heavy duty tires um, and gearing systems, which allowed for this kind of you know, allowed cyclists to both ride up the mountain. Um, you know what I mean? So you could, you know, you, you had a gear with, you had a bike with 21 gears, so you could get into a real low gear to, to climb a, climb a, a, a steep mountain and then, you know, shift into a, a high gear in order to ride, ride down and to go off-roading. Um, so, th so that, that is, uh, you know, of course, um, uh, you know, a sport, which a, a globally mega popular sport these days. What's interesting, of course, is that in the 80s and 90s and to a certain extent still today, you know, many people ride mountain bicycles who will never get near a mountain just because they're they're comfortable machines to ride. So lots of people ride them as just commuter vehicles in totally flat terrain because they're they're well engineered machines. Um, and then the, the related sport of BMX, as you say, um, kind of which uh, I have a chapter in, in my book about the tradition of, uh, of stunt cycling, um, a kind of trick riding, which as a form of entertainment dates way back to and kind of had a heyday in the 19th century in vaudeville and kind of, you know, popular entertainment vaudeville circus performers. So there were tons and tons of performers in the United States and across the world who specialized in doing doing tricks and stunts of various sorts on bikes, you know, whether it was like, you know, the very simple act of riding hands free, but super, it got real Rococo where people were, um, would jump over things, ride down steep stairways, do things where they rode loop-de-loops, of course, all kinds of, of uh, you know, crazy daredevil acts, which continues to this day. And of course, and that kind of popular entertainment of, of stunt riding, I think, um, in recent decades has kind of transformed into a form of sport, into the, into the form, of, into the, you know, the, the, the sport of, of BMX or of, you know, com, kind of competitive stunt cycling, which is now, of course, a, you know, in, we see in the, in the X games and it's even an Olympic sport. Um, and there's, and, and it's a big deal on, on YouTube as well. So I write, um, I write in, in my book a, a lot about a, a particular stunt rider named Danny McCaskill, who's a, who's, a, who's a kind of mega famous, at least on YouTube, stunt cyclist who, who's a, 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 a freestyle, you know, what's called a trials rider, like an urban trials rider who does a kind of parkour with his bicycle, crazy acts of balance and lots of big jumps over, over great big chasms in cities and other he, he just he like he kind of shreds the terrain that he finds anywhere and and um, puts together these really um, well edited videos that are set to music and get hundreds of millions of hits on YouTube. So it's a it's tradition it's a tradition of entertainment slash sport that stretches way back and it's and it's a big deal to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jody. Um, finally. I have a selfish question um, for you, and there is a chapter about this in your book, which um, I'm familiar with, but our listeners may not have read yet. But because I'm speaking to you from Aspen, where I just moved uh, in June, we are recording this in September, um, where sometime over the next month or so, Jody, it's going to start snowing here. Mm. Uh, the mountain bike park will be closed for the winter. So my question is, how can I still have fun on my bike in the snow? Can I ride in the winter? Definitely ride in the winter. Um, for one thing, you can you can kind of soup your bike up in various ways to ride in the winter. I mean, the most the the simplest way that people have, uh, which people have done for decades, is kind of a t is putting great big chains or studs of various sorts in on or in their tires to kind of like, you know, serve as kind of grips on, on the snow and ice. <laughs> so there's a lot of people who've done that, that, that kind of ghetto style, you know, um, you know, retrofitting of their bikes to turn them into winter vehicles. But of course there are like, there are bikes that are manufactured these days explicitly as winter bikes. Um, there are ones with huge, like kind of almost monster truck tires that are, that you inflate not quite fully so they kind of can squish down and 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 uh move through the snow 
um, pretty easily. And, and you know, this, as you say, I have a chapter in my book about winter cycling, which is, again, it's a phenomenon that stretches way, way back. And there are all kinds of interesting 19th century weirdo bikes that were, that people invented, bikes with skis, bikes with skates on them. Um, there was uh, a whole story of during the uh, the Klondike gold rush in the 1890s, which is something I write about of people, um, prospectors kind of riding bicycles to go try and find gold in, in the Canadian wilderness and Alaska um, in this period. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's a tradition that um, continues today in northern climes across the world. There are places where if you think of, um, you know, those places in Scandinavia and Northern Europe where there's a lot, where there's so much cycling, you know, people in, in the Netherlands and in, um, in Sweden, Norway, Finland, people there ride all year round through the snow and ice. And they just, they kind of soup up their bikes in various ways. So they're just kind of hardy. The thing about a bicycle is it's like, it, it works, it works okay as long as you have on the snow on the snow and ice as long as you have a decent tire that can can hug the road mm-hmm. you know um and uh and and so um and so yeah you know people people even ride bikes like in in the in the northernmost extremes of the world i for the for my book i traveled to a place called um called svalbard an archipelago of islands that's about eight that's north of the norwegian mainland it's like the, 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 the place with the largest population that's closest to the North Pole, an island in, in the Arctic Ocean, about 800 miles, I think, south of the North Pole. That makes sense. There's a, there's a few thousand people that live there year round and there's you know, many more times that number of polar bears that live there. But nearly everyone in, 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 uh, in the, the 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 little hamlet of Spitsbergen, um, on the on the in the in the Svalbard, uh, on the island of Svalbard, gets around um, by bicycle. Uh, even and that's a place where it's like you know thirty below in the winter, and you know the whole place is shackled in ice. So, what my 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 good the good news I have to for you is, yes, Jason, you can you can ride your bike in the winter, and and it can even be fun. Nice. Thank you so much for giving me. <laughs> I look okay. forward to it. Yeah, thank you, Jody. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. Folks, if you bike, if you have ever biked, or if you're thinking about biking, pick this book up. It is so incredibly informative and entertaining. And I promise you will not be disappointed. Listeners, I've been speaking with Jody Rosen, author of Two Wheels Good, which is published by our friends at Crown. Jody, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Moon Jason. I had a lot of fun. Once again, I would like to thank Jody Rosen for joining me. Copies of Two Wheels Good can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks and Quail Ridge Books. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking.